the the way the system runs is through top-down direction and performance management. That I find just astonishing. This is probably the most motivated and highly skilled workforce in industry. It just makes no sense to manage them through command and control. Hello, my name is Abby Rimmer. I'm the careers editor at the BMJ. Today I'm speaking to Professor Michael West. Michael, would you mind introducing yourself? Uh, hello, my name is Michael West. I'm Professor of Organisational Psychology at Lancaster University and a Senior Visiting Fellow at the King's Fund in London. Fantastic. And today we're going to talk about a report called Caring for Doctors, Caring for Patients, which you worked on with Dame Denise Coyer on behalf of the GMC. Um, but before we get into that, Michael, I wondered if you wouldn't mind kind of talking me through what an organisational psychologist is, because it's not a role that I know much about. Well, my training um, has been as a psychologist and, um, as you know, people spend a huge part of their lives at work and the experience that they have at work has an enormous impact on them personally in terms of their well-being and uh, and their, their sense of meaning in life. Um, but we're also very concerned with how we ensure that organisations are and teams are effective and are adaptable to changing circumstances. So I see my role as being uh, um, about understanding how we can ensure that teams and organisations fulfil their purpose, their mission in the workplace, but also how we ensure that people at work thrive and flourish and are well. And, and in fact, I think those th those two things go inextricably together. Uh, we, we ensure the effectiveness of organisations um, very much by focusing as well on the well-being and the growth and the development of the people who work within them. Mm. Which is probably something that maybe doctors don't feel like the NHS does enough of. So I'm sure people will be really interested to read your report. Just kind of reading it and having done some work myself on doctors' well-being and kind of talking about the issues around it, what really struck me is kind of at the... And you, please feel free to disagree, but what really struck me from your findings in this work is is the fact that doctors who work in the NHS don't feel valued by their employer. And that could be they don't get their rotor sorted out properly for them or they don't have a space to take a break. But fundamentally, it's always seemed to me, and even during the junior doctor strike in 2016, it really seemed to me that the, the core issue here was that these were employees who didn't feel valued. I think that's absolutely right. I think that um, in, in the many conversations that Denise Coyer and I had with doctors and their representative groups across the four UK countries, we heard continually uh, both that they didn't feel valued or respected and supported. I remember early on one of the um, one of one of the doctors we spoke to, a 37-year-old man, married, two children, told us he'd been recently told off for running in the corridors. And, and there was something about a sense of... I mean, he talked about feeling infantilised within his organisation mm. um, and not feeling valued and respected and supported. But it, it's, it's, it's not just that, Abby. I think it's also, for me, a really key issue that came out of our report was the harrowing stories about doctors coping with chronic excessive workload mm. every day, whether it's, you know, GPs who are just flat out from 
the time they get into the surgery at seven o'clock until the time they finish their paperwork and home visits. And, you know, one doctor uh, telling me that she'd finished at 7 p.m. exhausted, stepped out of the door and then just burst into tears or, or you know, doctors not having in hospitals places to rest or no time to take a break or no time to go to the toilet, not just on one occasion, but on shift after shift after shift. Mm. So I think it is, it, it's certainly about that sense of not being valued and supported and respected, but it's also recognising that doctors being asked to deal with chronic excessive workloads, which is simply unmanageable. Mm. That's what I thought what was interesting in your report, actually, that there kind of seems to be kind of two sides to this issue. There's the things that I think I've heard you quite nicely describe as, or it might be a phrase that um, Denise Coyer used as kind of pebbles in the shoe, you know, issues that ought to be sorted out, like rotors and, and places to sleep. And then there's actually this very large, overwhelming issue of workload, which must be more difficult to tackle, really. Yeah, and I think the two, you know, the the two go together. They 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 interact. So, um, talking with a junior doctor a couple of weeks ago, who was telling me they had five computers in the on call room, but only two of them worked. Mm. And um, and then there was the problem with passwords when they wanted to get onto systems and. They had some mobile computers to take into the wards, but the batteries were very often flat. Um, And those are, you know, what Denise talked about as being pebbles in the shoe. But, you know, they become boulders after a while. And coupled with that, the sense of just having this huge workload and and dealing with more patients than you feel safe dealing with. Um, and, And having, I guess the other thing that I heard a lot was a sense of moral distress that doctors feeling that they weren't providing the quality of care that they had come into medicine to provide and that they believed they should be providing simply because they were so overwhelmed with work and because there was a sense that, you know, the basic systems around them weren't supporting them in their work. And I I guess the other theme, Abby, that was, you know, I heard that was really important was we kept coming across examples of places that were getting it right. So, Um, you know, if one place can get it right, then all of them can get it right. That's interesting because I was sort of going to ask you. You know, the trouble with workload is you can't you can't really stop the patients coming into the hospital or into the GP practice. So, how do you address that when it's outside of your control? But it sounds like you have found areas that that made changes that did improve things for doctors. Yes, I mean, it, you know, it's a it's a it's a complex question, and and there are, I think, a variety of interventions, and and it might be helpful to explore some of them. And one is, um, you know, how we how we reduce unnecessary workload. Um, East London Foundation Trust has gone through um, two processes of reducing its clinical audit activities, and reduced them by eighty five percent. It's a mental health and community. Learning Disability Trust, which is rated outstanding by CQC, um, and their care quality has continued to rise. So a lot of the clinical audit activities, it seems, were not necessary and redundant and were more about, you know, kind of, I don't know, feeding the system than they were about really making a difference to patient care. And they've done a lot around um, asking staff to break the rules, to identify what rules they would break and to identify activities that they felt were unnecessary. And they identified, the staff talked about um, many examples of unnecessary bureaucracy or having to go to meetings that weren't adding value 
or travel to trust headquarters that was unnecessary. So so that's one aspect, I think, of reducing workload. And, and another, I think, that's really important, in, and we've made a recommendation in the report that every doctor should be part of a multidisciplinary home team, is that we see really good examples of people working in multidisciplinary teams in primary care, in secondary care. Um, the St. Hostel primary care practice in Cornwall um, the doctors there have brought in community psychiatric nurses to um, take on some of the workload of dealing with people with uh, mental health problems and they've brought in uh, pharmacists to deal with some of the um, um, you know repeat prescribing responsibilities I think they've brought in physiotherapists as well to help with um, to help with um, dealing with patients with musculoskeletal disorders and and that kind of um i don't like the the phrase that everybody uses task shifting i see it more as good multi multidisciplinary team working and role development that kind of multidisciplinary team working um can make a real difference to workload but also to the quality of care that patients are provided i think there's a bigger question abby that about how we engage communities and patients in their care and, and how we engage communities in the genuine co-design of uh, our healthcare services that enables them to take responsibility for helping us to deal with some of the workload problems that that exist um, and there are digital solutions as well University Hospital Birmingham, they've got a kind of two-minute short questionnaire for people to complete before they come to A&E because they're hoping to reduce the 30% of you know, unnecessary attendances or avoidable attendances at A&E. And they're seeking to implement the use of technology so patients can do their consultant outpatient appointments by Skype or by phone or um, whatever. And, and their ambitious aim is to reduce by 70% the, the number of um, outpatient appointments where patients have to you know, get transport, come into the hospital, wait around <clears throat> for their consultations. So I, I, I think that we have a collective responsibility to address the issues of workload. I think the real danger is that we just see chronic excessive workload as like the pattern on the wallpaper that we no longer see. It, it's actually um, it's actually really damaging to the health and well-being of doctors. It's the number one cause of doctors' stress and the number one reason they give for intending to quit. So we have to address this problem and con continue to address it. Mm. As you can hear, I feel passionate about it because um, it, it, it is an issue we must address and it does make such a difference to doctors' well-being and to their ability to deliver high-quality care as well. Mm, absolutely, and I think really what comes through in the report is that the places that have got this right have improved patient care by improving the well-being of their staff. I mean, you Yes, can't... absolutely. So we see, you know, we've got 15 years' worth of data from the um, National Staff Survey in secondary care and what that shows is that staff health and well-being is a really powerful predictor of subsequent care quality, patient satisfaction, um, and, and, and importantly in the, in the acute sector, patient mortality. Um, and, and there's quite a lot of evidence in primary care too. Sadly, we don't have a primary care survey in, in this country, and I, I really think we should because we should be um, looking at 
the work experience of all of those who work in primary care because um, I'm convinced from all of the data that we've seen and all of the studies we've seen that there is a very clear link between uh, the well-being of doctors in primary care and the care quality they're able to provide. Mm. I mean, given that you've found areas of really good practice and there are lots of them detailed in the report, I just wonder why the NHS hasn't tackled this before you know it's it's clearly a problem and it's been pro- a problem for a while why, why hasn't changes been made before now well it's um it is astonishing i think given the the strength of the evidence about the relationship between um the well-being of doctors the well-being of staff and patient outcomes I, and i think part of it is the NHS, in my experience, is an extraordinarily hierarchical organisation, still dominated by command and control. Um, uh, and there, there is a sense, I think, that um, the, the way the system runs is through top-down direction and performance management. That I find just astonishing. This is probably the most motivated and highly skilled workforce in industry. It just makes no sense to manage them through command and control. And that command and control, I think, it is a kind of um, a macho model of management that doesn't take, take account of what it is to be human and our frailties and the fact that if we're exposed to chronic excessive workload, it will damage our health and well-being. It will, it's linked with higher levels of cardiovascular disorder, of addictions, cancers, diabetes, depression. And uh, ignoring all of that is, is ignoring the reality of what it is to run an organisation that should be focused on compassion and should be characterised by compassion. There's also, I think, another issue, which is we see that among doctors themselves there's sometimes a sense that you know you've got to be really kind of tough and carry on that um we you know our role is to be resilient and provide high quality care it's fascinating to me that you know although um sickness absence in the nhs is twice what it is in the private sector it runs at about 3.4 percent amongst doctors um they're much less likely to take time off when they've been unwell um, as a result uh, compared with the rest of the NHS staff. So we see presenteeism, as it's called, coming to work when you're unwell is is very high in the NHS because stress levels are so high. And more than 50% of staff report coming to work in the last year when they've been unwell. But amongst doctors, um, it's significantly lower. So there is that sense amongst doctors that it's... I don't know that it's somehow um, this sense that we've got to be tough and carry on um, no matter what. And and maybe that's contributed to this neglect of doctors' well-being. But but it's an issue for all staff. I think we neglect the well-being of all staff in the NHS. and, And there is now, I think, a recognition that that has to change because we face a crisis in workforce with... Um, vacancies amongst nursing staff, vacancies amongst um, general, in general practice, they, high intentions to quit amongst doctors in secondary care. So I think that that is changing, and the new people plan is is focused on how we create uh, work environments which 
enable people to thrive and thrive and flourish. And the New People Plan talks about making the NHS a best place to work. I think that's wrong. I think we should make the NHS the best place to work in our in our society because its its role is just hugely significant in not just ensuring health, but in creating a broader sense of compassion within our communities. Mm. I mean, just going back to your point on presenteeism, I just wonder, you know, we, we also kind of hear about younger doctors working differently to their seniors, so perhaps wanting to work part-time or, you know, they have a, there's a desire for a better work-life balance. And I wonder how much longer the NHS can rely on this um, goodwill of its staff, not just doctors, but other staff too, you know, providing those extra hours unpaid or, or being there for handover when it's past the, the end of their shift, because presumably that's changing too and people are less willing to do that than they were in the past. Yes, um, I, I think your I think your question goes to the to the nub of the issues in a way because what we're seeing is um, I mean, higher levels of stress, for example, amongst junior doctors than we've seen over the last four or five years. The highest levels of stress amongst doctors in secondary care that we've seen um, in in the last four or five years. Amongst GPs, the lowest levels of satisfaction and highest levels of stress since um, we first, you know, since the, the, the GP work-life survey was first initiated, I think, back in the 1990s, and very high intentions to quit. 35% of GPs say they intend to quit in the next five years. 17% of doctors working in secondary care say they intend to quit the NHS as soon as they can get another job. So it's not sustainable, um, and uh, and and I think it's because people are 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 recognising that it's damaging to health and well-being. It's damaging to family life because you know we're spending so far away. But the do you know the other interesting thing I guess I heard from all of the conversations we had around the four UK countries was how much difference simple acts of support and kindness and consideration made so you know one doctor told us that um she was just really strung out really exhausted really feeling bad and then a nurse who she didn't know just appeared with a cup of tea and who said you know you're having i can see you're having a hard time you probably need this and she said it just transformed her day um writington wigan and lee has instituted monthly meetings with junior doctors where the chief executive attends and um, other the medical directors and, and the medical director and other key members of staff to hear from doctors about the things that are really causing them stress and they've now provided free parking overnight hot meals overnight they've redesigned rotors Birmingham Women and Children's Hospital has done something very similar. They have weekly Thursday morning meetings with finance director, HR director, consultant staff and junior doctors and they've redesigned all of their rotors. They've um, created over the last few years the roles of advanced clinical practitioner and physician associate to support doctors in their work. Um, and you know, it's not—it's it, both those tangible things, but also those simple set things. Writington, Wigan, and Lee has given all of its staff a day off for their birthdays each year, and those little gestures, I think, sometimes compensate for you know for some of the difficulties that people 
otherwise are getting fed up with. So I think it, it, you know, it's going back to your point at the beginning. It is about valuing and respecting and supporting people. Uh, but it's also about uh, it's not enough to have um, tea and cakes and sympathy or meditation or Pilates, soft fruit and yoga. It is also about changing the workplace conditions which are causing problems mm. like a, a sense of not working in an organisation where there's justice and fairness or where I, I have a sense of voice and influence, um, where I don't feel part of a team or that doesn't feel uh, you know, like it's a learning culture, it feels like it's a blame culture or where there is chronic excessive workload. So we have to address those underlying conditions as mm. well. And I think that's what was I found really encouraging about your report is that you quite clearly put the focus on improving the systems that doctors work in rather than trying to get doctors to improve themselves you know we've had we've seen a backlash towards resilience training and encouraging doctors themselves to be resilient and people are aware that it's Mm. the system that needs to change but just going back to your last point if I can be candid because I I do think it's fantastic that there are trusts who are doing things like sorting out the rotors and giving free parking but part of me just gets so frustrated because you think why couldn't have this been done before you know these aren't difficult things it shouldn't have taken years to work out that junior doctors just wanted to be rotated in a way that meant they knew where they were going to be working in four or six weeks time I mean these aren't it's not rocket science so why is it taken so long to happen I, I, I mean it is it, it is hugely frustrating that this isn't being done and it's so um, you know It's so lacking in compassion, and yet the NHS is supposed to be a sector, a system built on compassion of providing care for everyone who needs it. And, you know, I keep saying to people when I go around the NHS and talking about our findings and the more general findings around staff well-being, you know, the NHS exists to to give high quality, continually improving and compassionate care to patients and communities and that means we have to ensure high quality continually improving and compassionate support for all of our staff that's how we achieve um, care for patients and so it is frustrating Um, I guess I feel frustrated that in many in many places this is not happening and you know and sometimes you know you, you it's this is not just about secondary care it's in primary care where doctors are not ensuring that all of their staff meet together on a regular basis and take time out. I was talking to Prince of Wales Surgery in Leicester. They've started having two or three one-hour meetings a week as well as a partner's meeting on a Monday. And the and the two or three meetings a week are with all of their staff to talk about the issues, the problems, the particular patient issues they're facing. And through that, they're, they're finding that they're more productive, they have a greater sense of well-being, there is less pressure of workload so I think it is also about the culture of our organizations and you know culture we're in a sense all responsible for because every interaction by every one of us every day shapes the culture of our organizations how warm we are how supportive we are whether we give we give each other cups of tea how compassionate we are how irritable we are and so on but the role of leaders across our organizations whether it's in an acute hospital, whether it's in CQC, NHS England, NHS Improvement, the role of leaders is particularly powerful in creating cultures. And I think over the years, our leadership models have been more focused on command and control and um, some kind of performance management idea that says, if I push these levers, then you know we'll increase productivity, rather than 
um, leadership models focused on compassion, about listening to those we lead, understanding the challenges they face, empathizing with them and helping them. Mm. And, and that's how we, I think, achieve um, more supportive, compassionate cultures. I mean, what we know from the leadership literature is the most important task of a skill of a leader is to listen to those they lead. And the most important task is to help those they lead to do the job that they want to do, which is to provide um, high quality care. So um, I think it's to do with culture and leadership. Um, but and, and I think the time is right now when we're seeing good examples, as I as I say, around the country of where compassionate leadership is being developed and uh, cultures are being transformed to provide more supportive environments uh, for staff. Mm. And I absolutely agree with you. I think it can be easy to underestimate how much of an impact the culture of your senior leaders can have on, say, you as a doctor working on the wards or a GP in general practice. But I, I worry that at the moment, because of this huge amount of workload pressure that we have, you know, people don't have the time to be compassionate towards their colleagues because they're using all their energy on being compassionate towards their patients and doing the job. I saw a, a tweet from a nurse and she was saying she gets told by her family that she uses up all her niceness at work. So when she comes home, she's irritable. And I, that kind of nicely summed up for me how I feel the workforce is at the moment. You know, people are so stressed they don't have time to be compassionate to their colleagues or they don't have the headspace to say to them, actually, you're really ill, you need to go home because they're so worried that if that person goes home sick, they won't be able to get the job done. So that's my worry at the moment. I think you're absolutely right, and we know that you know in terms of in terms of the well-being of humans generally, the most important factor by far and away in, in relation to our well-being is spending quality time with people we love and who love us. And you know, as you say, what's happening for many NHS staff and and certainly doctors for many of them is going home at the end of the working day or at the end of the working week so exhausted that they can't spend that quality time. Um, and and yet and yet what we see is that um, if doctors are working in uh, teams, we ask doctors, do you, you know, in the, in the National Staff Survey, do you work in a team? And then we ask, does the team have shared objectives and do you meet regularly to review your performance? Where doctors work in a team with those simple characteristics, they are something like 50, 60 percent less likely to be to have had a stress related illness in the past year. Um, about, about one and a half ten times less likely to be planning to quit the NHS um, and about 60% less likely to have musculoskeletal disorders themselves. So being part of a supportive team um, and relatively stable team in their work life where there is that support and um, and compassion can make a profound difference. But but nevertheless, and I, and I want to keep emphasising this, I think um, unless we are addressing the issue of chronic excessive workload in all areas of the health service, then we're not addressing what is the most um, significant problem that is impacting on the well-being of doctors and, health and, and NHS staff generally, but also on patient care. Um, we and patient satisfaction. We we know it's the number one negative predictor of patient satisfaction. The higher the level um, of workload that staff report, the lower the levels of um, patient satisfaction. 
and and certainly my, what I have been doing in my conversations with NHS England, NHS improvement around the people plan is constantly emphasising that we if we must address chronic excessive workload as part of the as a fundamental part of the problem because I think there's always a danger that senior leaders just kind of slip sideways away from that problem because they see it as un, as intractable and unmanageable and that's simply not true because as I've um, you know as I've said we've got really good examples of where chronic excessive workload is is being dealt with um, but we have to do better and we have to keep addressing that issue it's not you know, it's not a one-off issue. This is something, you know, the issue of chronic excessive workload is something that senior leaders need to be addressing on a continuous basis. Uh, it's not It's not about coming in with a one-off short-term solution. It's something we must continually be vigilant about because it is so significant in terms of the experience of doctors, their health and well-being and patient care. And when, you were, when we were discussing... Workload earlier, one of the things you said, which I thought was really interesting, was about um, getting patients involved to look at yeah. to workload and how that works. And one one thing I often think about, and is sort of it's my personal opinion, is often I don't think in this country we actually educate people enough about the NHS and how it works and how it's funded. So it's quite difficult for people to understand how they could use it best if they don't know how it works. And I'm happy for you to disagree with that um but really i wanted to hear more from you about what how you envisaged patient partnership would work in kind of reducing workload well um, you know at an individual patient level we are moving more towards um um you know in, in individual consultations then there's more involvement of, of patients in their own care so we are, are moving away from that kind of paternalistic disempowering model so we're starting to empower people but i and and that's a good thing because you know it can encourage people to take more responsibility for their own care but i think the issues are um are broader than that so we need to find ways of um, as you say, to educate people about how they can help. Um, uh, and we need to manage expectations of people about about what they um, can reasonably expect and um, and how they can help in the provision of services. And, and, and that means, I think, starting to move towards more co-design, co-ownership models um, and integrated care. So, for example, Healthy Wigan has involved the the council healthcare services voluntary groups community groups social care in in a kind of collective partnership to look at how the community itself can provide more support through um things like you know social prescribing schemes or volunteer schemes or getting people involved um in community groups in supporting people who are um unwell and need care and and we also have examples around the world in in actually very challenged places so the south central system in alaska you know what's called the nuka system where patients aren't called patients i think they're called citizen owners and where all of the health and social care services are working with the local communities and the local leaders in the design of health services and they've had extraordinary success in reducing you know, amongst a very challenged population, alcoholism, um, drug abuse, um, suicides, they've been very successful in that co-design process. Or 
The other one that I always think is very um, inspiring is the Montefiore system in, again, a very challenged area, the Bronx in New York, where various healthcare and community groups and patient groups have come together to identify some of the underlying health problems um, and, and the factors that cause those health problems, like appalling housing or unemployment or um, uh, lone parenting, and, and dealing with them um, collectively and as communities. And, and I, think, I think for the NHS in, in, in our country, there is now a need to begin to move in that direction so that we give communities more control, more power, more responsibility for the co-design of services. Because I think, as you rightly say, the reality is we we can't just go on delivering um, on demand a service to a population that hasn't been educated or engaged, educated in terms of how the service works and engaged in um, the taking shared responsibility for services uh, because the whole system is creaking. And it's not just about, I mean, it is, I think, about um, certainly providing more more resources for the NHS, but that's not going to solve the problems that we face by uh, by itself. What we need is to see how through working with the community, we can uh, encourage a sense of shared responsibility and ownership. Mm. And I think that's definitely an approach I feel like doctors working in the in the NHS would be supportive of because what I've seen when it comes to discussions about, you know, saying to patients, oh, you shouldn't have come to A&E or you shouldn't come to a G- your GP practice, doctors are very against that. But that kind of co-creation model sounds much more like something I think people could get on board with. Um, Michael, yeah. I've got one last question for you before we kind of bring this to a close. And it's something that I've kind of been wondering about this whole time. And that's, I wondered if you could talk a bit about how the NHS compares to other organisations in terms of looking after the well-being of its staff. Is the NHS much worse at this than other people? Or is it just that the nature of the way that the NHS works makes this a lot more difficult? I, I, you know, ironically, actually, Abby, it, it's significantly worse, I think. I mean, 50% more staff in the NHS report debilitating levels of work stress compared with the general working population as a whole. So, um, you know, and I think it is to do with all of the factors we've talked about, uh, a lack of voice and influence, um, feeling that they're working in a context where they'll be blamed, um, where there isn't a focus on... Um, learning and justice where there is discrimination um, and not working in in stable supportive teams and not working in cultures that are supportive and compassionate um, and and not having a sense of um, continuing support for their growth and development now I'm not saying that that's you know, all being done um, very well in other sectors and in other organisations. It's not. There's there's clearly considerable variation. But the NHS does have significantly higher levels of stress. And and it's, it's, it's not correct to say that that is due to the nature of the work. If we look at, for example, the incidence of stress-related illness amongst doctors in secondary care, 
the variation between organisations in secondary care in the NHS in England is huge. So it goes from a high, a low rather, of 28% of doctors saying that they've had a stress-related illness in the last year, that itself is unacceptable, to a high of 51% with an average of 39%. So some places are getting it much more right than others. And the challenge for us is to... Um, is to reduce the variability, but also to reduce the levels of stress generally. And, um, and, and not just reducing levels of stress, but also creating more of a sense of joy at work. Because, you know, most of, um, vast majority of doctors who go to work in the NHS do so because they have a core commitment to providing compassionate, high quality care. And, you know, what, despite everything, what we hear from so many doctors is that they really, ha you know, they love uh, their work when they're when they're able to provide high quality care. So, um, you know, it, it's a, it's about having that aspiration of making the NHS the best place to work. And we see, as I've said, so many examples of places in primary care, secondary care, that are getting things right. Um, that it it isn't some you know idealistic vision in the future. We can do it now just by making sure that we're adapting those examples of good practice and instituting them everywhere. And and that's my commitment in terms of the work I'm doing. And, and I believe it should be all of the imperative for all of us. Mm. And that, I think that's definitely the positive that I took away from reading your report is that there are pockets of really good practice and, and these things can be done elsewhere. It's also nice to hear you mention joy at work because in our Christmas BMJ this year, I put together a piece asking doctors what brings them joy at work and a lot of the things are the things that you've mentioned in your report so it's feeling part of a team or having autonomy over the way you work so it all ties together um i feel like we could talk about this forever because there's so many interesting different strands that we could pick up on but i think we ought to leave it there so thank you so much for talking to me michael it's been brilliant it's been a privilege for me abby thank you that was the bmj careers editor abby rumor talking to Michael West, organisational psychologist and author of the GMC report, Caring for Doctors, Caring for Patients. I've linked to that report from the podcast text. If you're interested in well-being, then you can find out everything else that the BMJ has been doing on that in the last year at bmj.com wellbeing. You can also hear Abby in our student-focused podcast, Sharp Scratch, that's also out today, and we hear from doctors about the little things they do to make their life in clinic better. That's available wherever you're listening to this from. We'll be back next week with more from the world of medicine. Until then, thanks for listening.